Welcome to my podcast, Explain It To Me, where I talk to very intelligent people and get them to explain things to me in the simplest way possible. On this episode, I speak with an environmental consultant and we talk about wetlands. So uh, yeah, my name is Andrea, Andrea Zemro. I'm an environmental consultant and I have a professional agrologist designation as well. And yeah, I basically... I'm here to, I guess I'll let you say that, but <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are we here talking about today? I was like, no worries. I will man both the podcaster <laughs> and the podcast B role tonight, but <laughs> hey, that works for me. Awesome. Perfect. We'll sit back and relax. Let me talk about, yeah, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. um, we are talking about, I guess, environmental consulting and just, you know, environmental conservation in general, I think. So we, what do you do as an environmental consultant? Yeah, it's, it is a very broad field. I mean, it's like anything, you know, you say you're a doctor, but that could mean anything, right? And so for myself, I specialize in uh, wetland science and vegetation. So I kind of have, you know, narrowed that field a little bit. Um, so typically, I guess what my work looks like um, day to day I have clients, uh, usually they'll be like developer types or they might be the city. Uh, formerly I've had clients in oil and gas industries. And so those clients come to us because they're gonna be developing something. So a piece of land uh, traditionally, they'll either be putting in a pipeline or putting a building on it, um, something that's gonna change that land uh, landscape. So they, sometimes that looks like they'll be taken out of wetland or yeah, they have to do a survey to see if there's rare plants on the property or they need to know how many birds or wildlife species um, are uh, creating habitat on that, that property. So we'll go out before they develop and basically do a survey of all the environmental features, specializing or focusing on those really sensitive things like wetlands or rare plants because um, those are kind of the big ticket items according to the government and the, uh, the people in charge. So I have an idea of what a wetland is, but it's probably not actually what a wetland is. So what is a wetland? Yeah, great question. Great question. Uh, we definitely get that a lot. Um, we have people that say, hey, you know, I've got this property. You know, I don't have anything that's special on it. Uh, there's land that's wet, but no wetlands. <laughs> no wetlands. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that so, so often. And unfortunately, oftentimes land that is wet is a wetland. And I mean, <laughs> that's part of my job is, I guess, education, right? So I'm taking, uh, I'm helping kind of train our clients to learn kind of more about what is a wetland. And we're going off of guidelines that are put out by the government. Like what are those guidelines? So um, Alberta Environment and Parks, they are kind of the head honchos and they're kind of the ones that get to determine what, how they define a wetland. And so uh, in 2015, they came out with guides, uh, the Alberta Wetland uh, Identification and Delineation Guidelines. And so they basically define what a wetland is in that. And so they're using a mix of vegetation and uh, hydric soils. So hydric soils being kind of like uh, wetland soils. So we have to do surveys to identify, yeah, both the vegetation and the soil types. Um, and that helps us determine, A, confirms that it's a wetland, and then B, helps us determine the classification of that wetland. 
because uh, there's different classes of wetlands as well. So it's not a, not a one size fits all. There's uh, you know higher priority wetlands that are um, a little bit more diverse in terms of their wildlife and their vegetation. And those have a higher priority, which comes into play when they look at having to compensate for removing that wetland. But uh, yeah, so we are basically using Alberta Environments guidelines to determine if our clients um, have have wetlands on their property or not. Okay, so how many different, you said there's like different types of wetland. Mm -hmm. How many types are there? And also like what would differentiate one type from another? Mm -hmm. So a few different things. Um, for myself, the big differentiations are vegetation. Um, the soils, you'll basically either have wetland soils or you won't. I mean, there's not a lot of differences in the, in the soil classification, but vegetation kind of helps me determine what classification a wetland is. And you'll also want to look at hydrology. So like the, the flowing of water on the landscape, that can sometimes help determine the type of wetland as well. So in, in the prairie area, like in where I live in Calgary here, uh, typically you'll see a lot of marshes and, and that's, that's one classification of a wetland. And there's also swamps uh, in the boreal forest up near Fort McMurray, there's bogs and there's fens and uh, you'll see, also see marshes and swamps. So, I mean, there's kind of the four overarching classes of wetlands. And then within those four classes, there's subcategories as well. So like a marsh, for example, you could have a temporary marsh or you can have a semi-permanent marsh. Um, so, I mean, within that classification, you kind of using that vegetation, you kind of sub-classify it. And again, that kind of determines, unfortunately, it determines its anthropogenic value. I mean, wetlands are valuable regardless of how humans interact with them. But unfortunately, when people are going to take a wetland out, they have to put a value or a number or economic value on it so they can know how much they have to pay or have to, you know, what they have to do to basically compensate for that wetland. But um but yeah, I mean, within there's still there's a lot of classes basically, and uh, we get to determine that as environmental consultants. So when a company comes in and then they bring in you, um, and you determine there's a wetland, what is it that the company or developer has to do? Because you were saying that like they they put a dollar value on it. Does that mean that they have to put money in to create a different wetland, or is it that they have to kind of protect the wetland that's there? Uh, I would love if they had to protect the wetland and keep it there and put it with it, but unfortunately, that is that is it is one option, but that's not the predominant option that gets chosen. So they kind of have a few different pathways that they can choose, but one of them is compensation. So basically, they remove the wetland and they pay money uh, to the government, and the government puts that money into a trust, and then that money is supposed to be used to build new wetlands or to help take wetlands that are currently established and kind of raise their value in terms of making maybe more diversification in the wetland vegetation or bringing in new habitat for bird species. And then the other pathways, so compensation's one, um, they can also uh, do restoration work. So that would be something like they take out one wetland on their property, but then they restore another wetland somewhere else on that property. And then, yeah, basically, you know, conservation where they just keep the wetland. So there's three options for developers. 
um, and people kind of using the land. Unfortunately, compensation, so paying for that wetland and just taking it out is, is usually the pathway most people mm -hmm. choose, um, unfortunately. But, you know, we, we have to grow, we got to develop. <laughs> I yeah. say that kind of tongue in cheek because I mean that's my bread and butter and like I definitely help facilitate that sometimes but also that's hard to hear because I mean I don't know I can't speak to the numbers for northern Alberta but in southern Alberta for example we've lost like over 70 percent of our wetlands which no way sad <laughs> yeah. yeah unfortunately and I mean some of these wetlands could be really really small they call them we're in the region called the prairie pothole uh kind of wetland region so some of them are just like little pockets of you know water that pools but others could be you know huge you know multi-hectare wetland complexes that are super diverse and super great and have a lot of ecological value and uh, unfortunately they're just in the wrong place for us humans and we want to put a you know housing development there or, you know cross iron mills or whatever right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the wetland gets the boot but uh, but it does it does have big big impacts unfortunately when we take those wetlands out so you know I, I could talk a little bit more about wetlands and their value but they basically they're they're pools of water right so when we get a, a really big spring melt all of a sudden maybe you know we have we go extreme temperature differences and all the snow melts rapidly that water has to go somewhere and so you know eventually it flows into our kind of rivers and lakes but in the interim, it's like we flood the ground, like the groundwater has nowhere, the groundwater table is too high and there's nowhere for that water to go. So wetlands are great storage facilities. They basically hold on to that water temporarily before it gets again, kind of shunted back into the, the ecosystem, into rivers and lakes. So a lot of times when we take out those kind of, all those wetlands or those storage facilities, all of a sudden that water ends up flooding the rivers. Then we have things like the 2013 flood in Calgary where, you know, the waters rose so fast. There just isn't that storage capacity because we've put all these impervious surfaces like paved roads and parking lots and we've taken out all the wetlands. The water's like, where am I going to go? So it just kind of floods to the rivers and all right. of a sudden we've got major problems for us humans so yeah wetlands are super valuable i mean and that's again more so for an anthropogenic you know reason but i mean outside of that anthropogenic reason they're also really diverse um habitats so they're kind of we have species that are called keystone species that are like uh they're really important they're like uh the canary in the coal mine basically right we lose those species and basically we're often we're on the brink of losing that type of ecosystem or those special areas wetlands are kind of like a keystone species so i mean they're these little diverse pockets and we often see you know really cool vegetation associated with them or we might see um like rare bird species or rare mammals that you wouldn't find in other places so when we lose those wetlands, we lose those little habitat pockets for, you know, veg and wildlife and, and things that are important in their own right that maybe don't have a dollar value for us humans. But once you lose it, you can't get it back. And sometimes right. we lose things before we even realize the value, unfortunately. I think we went off to the thick there, but... <laughs> That's all good. That's all good. <laughs> Wetland uh... rant, nerding out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah. What kind of uh, 
like vegetation and animal insect life exists in wetlands. Mm -hmm. Well, you see all types. I mean, you can get these tiny little uh, bryophytes or like mosses. Um, you could have that all the way to huge willow stands that are over, you know, five or six feet tall to aspen trees. So you get, yeah, really, really diverse um, in terms of, especially depending on the type of wetland. Yeah, you can see tons of different wildlife species. It's a really, really cool place. Some, some species, um, they're, high, uh, they're water, water loving. And so basically you won't find them anywhere else. So, I mean, like carexes or sedges, you won't find those outside of water. Uh, willow species are typically associated with areas that get flooded ephemerally. Um, cattails, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of rushes and bulrushes that you'll find in wetlands that again you won't find um, in upland areas so yeah it's, it's a really really cool place and then associated with those vegetation species you'll find um, I mean we go out and we do frog surveys um, or amphibian surveys you can find snakes in the banks of, of wetlands there's a ton of rare bird species that are kind of water lovers so I mean yeah it's important it's important to keep them around other than, I know these are like big things, but like other than like flooding, like when in the springtime and then loss of animals, what other negative impact does losing wetlands have? Like I know those two are big ones. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, actually wetlands also also filter the water for us. So I mean, a lot of that, those vegetation species will actually filter the water and remove sediments and remove heavy metals and other toxins and things that we don't want in our water. So it's kind of like a, a natural Brita filter, if you will. Um, and oh, again, cool. if we don't have wetlands, we don't get that. So, I mean, then it ends up in our rivers and, and then it affects our drinking water. Again, it's a little bit more anthropogenic, but I mean, those are still important things. We're humans and we want to live. So why not? So earlier... Go team wetland. <laughs> yeah. So you were saying earlier that um, companies will pay money to the government a lot of times and then the government has a fund. So does the government create new wetlands then? And if so, how do they do it? Yeah, I, I guess like don't don't report me or anything to <laughs> the government, but <laughs> unfortunately they've been building up this big fund and haven't, haven't really been using it. Oh. And I don't know if that's just because they don't have those guidelines in place, like for how to allocate those funds or like even, even the science behind wetland restoration is fairly new. It's kind of like the Wild West. I mean, we're taking out wetlands left, right, and center. And we're like, oh, we'll just put a new wetland in to replace the one that we just took out. But I mean, how do you create a wetland? I mean, we, we know the, we have the idea of all the different components. And I think we think that because we know the components that we can make it happen, but it is, it's usually a thing that's come about through a process. Wetlands aren't just like, you know, made in a day. It's something that's happened through a lot of different different ecological processes to get to that place. So we definitely are trying. I mean, there's definitely projects that I've worked on that are that involve that wetland restoration component. And I mean, oh man, that's amazing. I want to be able to help recreate wetlands or help to bring back wetlands, but it is still a bit of a, an unknown. So I mean, we can we can prescribe the right you know wetland vegetation, and we can make sure the hydrology is is good um, and supportive of a wetland environment. But you know, to have all those pieces come together and then it all to work out, you know, we're still kind of stabbing in the dark. 
So, I mean, you know, it sounds really good. You know, you take a wetland out, you pay your fee and then a new wetland's put in somewhere else. But unfortunately we aren't seeing that yet. Um, I mean, hopefully that's something that becomes a priority. And again, it, it totally depends on the, the government and power and all those things like, you know, we have to buffer the environment with, you know, the economic side of things and keep everything good. And it's a huge task. I don't, I don't try to make light of the political side of things, but yeah, we're not, we're not necessarily using the funds. We're collecting them. So, I mean, that's a good first start. And so hopefully mm -hmm. in the future, they'll be, they'll be allocated and some wetlands will be restored or uh, created. Okay, cool. What's involved with wetland restoration then? So sometimes that looks like um, they're taking a wetland that's maybe been disturbed. So um, unfortunately, because people don't always know what a wetland is, or they don't really care, uh, unfortunately, they sometimes will, you know, either put, they'll put material in the, the land, into the wetland to try to fill it. So that obviously causes a big disturbance. Um, or they'll, you know, because it's maybe a, um, it's maybe not flooded all year round, depending on the type of wetland, it might be more ephemeral or temporary in nature. So in the times that it's dry, maybe they'll try like in agricultural, maybe try to cultivate through the wetland. So all of a sudden, you know, the wetland plants are no longer there and there's, you know, a lot of agricultural weed species showing up and that sort of thing. So. So sometimes restoration looks like we're taking that disturbed wetland and we're trying to bring it back to the classification that it was before, or even just try to remove, you know, those weed species and that sort of thing. Sometimes uh, restoration or creation looks like maybe there's no wetland on that property right now. And, and so then we're actually bringing in a brand new wetland. So that that's a little bit more involved because all of a sudden then we have to kind of figure out topography, like how we want to grade the property and flood levels and water table depths and all these things. It's a lot easier to restore something that was already there versus creating it from scratch. But, you know, we do both. And that hopefully is going to continue, I guess, because we're taking out all these wetlands. So. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that they are protected by the government. Is that on the federal level or is that on the provincial level? Um, uh, both. I think the federal policy kind of guides the, the provincial policy, but the province is definitely the ones that we report to. So, uh, yeah, the Alberta Water Act is the kind of governing document that basically guides everything. And so if people want to remove a wetland, yeah, eventually they have to pay. That's kind of the final step but they actually have to uh, apply for a water act application. Um, and so that involves, yeah, submitting certain documents. So for us, it's um, a where or a wetland assessment and impact report. So we have to submit that and we have to submit a bunch of other information to the government, to the Alberta Environment and Parks uh, Department. And they review it. And then usually there's a lot of back and forth and figuring out, you know, what, what, we're proposing in terms of removing the wetland and proper mitigation and you know reduction of impacts and so through that we go through a lot of conversation with the government and figuring out how to make it work and then if they get approval um, then that's usually when the compensation piece comes in if they choose to go that pathway but yeah so there is they have to get provincial approval before they can take a wetland out clients or industry or even the city of Calgary, all these people have to get that approval. These wetlands are a provincially regulated environmental resource, cool. which is nice. 
it wasn't like that. I mean, when I started out, that wasn't a thing. You could just take wetlands out because they didn't have a policy in place. That obviously resulted in a lot of wetland. <laughs> when did, and I mean, my career span is not that long. But When did that policy come into place? It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until, I mean, I think they had an interim policy in 2012. And then in 2015, they had the kind of full, full policy, which is what we're using now. No yeah, way. I mean, that was what, <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> it's, uh, people have been wow. taking out wetlands forever, but I mean, at the rate that we grow and that, you know, the finite number of wetlands we have on a, on a, in a, in the province, it's not really that sustainable. So thankfully they put something into place, but amazing. Eh, that, that it took that long. No kidding. <laughs> amazing I... to me anyways. Wow. I did not know it was, took that long. Jeez. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah it's wild. Hey. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's hard for me too. I, I do a lot of vegetation work, but I also have kind of a vegetation specialization. So, I mean, there's no, no policies on rare plants. Like, I mean, they can just take these plants out and there's really, you know, nothing that anyone can do about it. So that's hard. I mean, it's just, it's, it's because of that public image I mean, the big ticket items like the, you know, the caribou or the polar bears, I mean, you can really, you know, get a lot of public support and all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure on the government to put rules and regulations and policies in place to protect those species. It took a while before wetlands got, you know, I don't know, priority or I don't know, I wouldn't say sexy. I don't think wetlands are sexy in the public opinion, but (laughs) (laughs) it's, uh, it takes a while before government does anything. If the, you know, the public outcry isn't there, there's not a lot of motivation for them just to self-regulate. So, I mean, hopefully people learn more about the value of wetlands and, and the reason why we want to conserve and preserve those, those water bodies. But till then, thankfully, there is a government policy in place to help protect. So that coal policy that the government, you know, rescinded, but they put back into place now, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a wild ride. And I mean, so yeah, they took this policy from the 1970s. And they, you know, back then, they, you know, the government at the time realized that there was a lot of value in in keeping those foothills and those really like, you know, special, sensitive areas safe. So they put this coal policy in place. That was great. And then all of a sudden, you know, this year, they or 2020, they decided to rescind that coal policy thinking, you know, hey, time for development, which is wild, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, they decided to go that route. Thankfully, there has been a huge public outcry because I mean, these are really important areas. They're headwaters for a lot of um, our drinking water and agricultural use. Uh, they're sensitive for species, uh, wildlife and veg. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, for them to, to think that having coal mining operations in, in this foothills area was a good idea is kind of wild to me from the environmental perspective. But thankfully, I wasn't alone that there was yeah. a lot of people that rallied behind that and kind of spoke their truth to the government. But I mean, so the government's put the coal policy back in place kind of with a caveat of my, my limited understanding. I mean, I'm not in politics, but it sounds like they, they're talking about a new coal policy. So, I mean, there's still um, things to be determined. And I mean, they're doing a lot of exploration in the area still, and that's allowed. So you have to wonder why that's being, uh, that's being accepted as a practice if they're not gonna allow them to mine. 
Yeah. And and then it's going to be like, well, is mountaintop removal okay? As long as it's called mountaintop removal and not coal mining. You mean, there's, it's, there's a lot of room to wiggle, it sounds like. We're not out of the woods just yet, but, you know, hopefully people continue to rally and you know, the government sees that it's a priority for Albertans to keep those those areas safe from coal mining, but. What consequences or negative consequences could there be to like wetlands and stuff like that if mining was allowed there? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, depending on the property, they may or may not have wetlands, but especially if they're on the mountaintops, but I, um, so, yeah. but I mean, anything, anything that causes groundwater pollution so specifically coal mining, you have to worry about heavy metals and things like selenium or arsenic, things that are poisonous. I mean, that seeps through the ground and comes off. So it seeps through the groundwater, but also comes off as acid rain. So when the rain comes and then it kind of percolates those heavy metals and they kind of end up in our water bodies, be that a wetland or be that a river or a tributary, I mean, those, that's bad. <laughs> I mean, you don't just get them out. You can't just scoop it out. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, once you're polluted, you're in trouble. So yeah, it's going to have a big impact. Um, I mean, the mining, for, you know, outside of the water impact will have an impact to, you know, wildlife in the area, you know, specifically ungulates as they're kind of migrating through the foothills region, or we've got impacts to, you know, bear populations and, and wolf populations, but but yeah, the, the water impact is going to have a big impact on us as humans. And I mean, regard outside of the pollution issue, you also have water use issues. So I mean, there is all the water basically is allocated in Alberta, so it's already spoken for. I mean, we're not getting new water. We're kind of we have a we have an idea of how much we have, and it's either been. Yeah, it's all the licenses. So all all water is licensed. And so it belongs to someone and it's a temp, you know, not a it's not a forever license. If you die, it goes to someone else. Um, corporations can sell them, but it's all been spoken for. And so, yeah, I mean, a coal mine takes a lot of water and we don't have that water to give. So, I mean, I, I've been reading up on that too, which is another issue outside of the pollution um, downstream issue is just the lack of water availability. And, you know, unfortunately, as climate change is happening, we're kind of water's becoming more and more scarce and more of a priority. And so, yeah, to have a coal mine come in when we're kind of already scarce water wise, and then the potential for pollution and um, like water corruption is just so huge, seems like really backwards. Again, it's like, well, you, you look at it, it depends on how you look at it, right? And it's like, you see the mine and you think, okay, great, we'll have, you know, a, re- a lot of economic windfall from bringing in this, this, you know, intensive industry, but at a price, you know, if we're selling our water, which is a really important thing for life and for agriculture and for just everything, I mean, you, you know, what is the economic price of that? Are we actually getting any value from having a coal mine? Right. I, I would think not. I mean, I don't have the numbers and dollars and cents, but but yeah, I mean, you don't get that stuff back. And as we've seen with the orphan well problem in Alberta, unfortunately, a lot of these companies will maybe come in and they'll put in a mine. And then once something happens and kind of the shit hits the fan, so to speak, they often, you know, will abandon the project 
and I don't know about coal mining, but a lot of times there isn't that kind of government provision. Either they don't have funds that are allocated for, you know, coal mine reclamation, or they just don't have any policies in place to hold these, these companies responsible for the damages they've done. So, I mean, and I think, I think coal mine would have a lot more at stake uh, environmentally compared to, you know, a single well not to say that I don't want to make light of or the orphan well problem, but I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, the scale is maybe a bit different. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was really happy to hear that they, they rescinded the, um, or they put the coal, coal policy back in place, but it's not over yet. So yeah. <laughs> here's hoping that they'll just kind of keep making it more, more difficult or they'll just, you know, say no to coal mining in Alberta, but. I, I think that was pretty much all my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I'd love, I'd love for people to value wetlands more. So, I mean, I don't know what that looks like. I think education is always, I guess, the first step in my opinion. So maybe that looks like bringing in more education in the school system as to what a wetland is and like why it's valuable, both like environmentally and anthropogenically and all these different ways. I mean, I love places that have, um, you know, boardwalks around a wetland, for example, and they've got infographics that explain like, you know, these are the bird species you might see. And this is, you know, why why wetlands are valuable. So, I mean, I hope that those those projects continue. Happy to see these developments, these um, neighborhoods that are really kind of, they practice greenwashing where they basically, they're preserving wetlands because the people that are moving in see that as a valuable thing. And they want to be able to walk their dog around this really nice, you know, cattail covered storm pond basically but but I mean those those features get kept because the people feel it's valuable so I, I continue to hope that I mean that people will a learn what a wetland is that it is indeed land that is wet but has <laughs> more things going on <laughs> and that yeah that we continue to teach our children and, and um, our friends and family that these things are valuable because that's it. I mean, you could rally the government, but if you're only one voice, nothing's going to change. Unfortunately, I don't think it's. I think it's worth still trying. But I mean, if you can, if you can convince people why these these features are valuable, then you're going to have a lot more power behind you, and your voice, you know, is is louder when there's multiple voices involved. So yeah, I guess as a passionate environmental consultant. I hope people will uh, will come to see the value in wetlands and then we can all keep them together. Cool. So another question, what could the average person do to help protect wetlands? Yeah. So, I mean, go to those places that are already protected. I mean, unfortunately, leadership is a big driver of these, uh, these um, big efforts. So, I mean, Ducks Unlimited is a great organization. Uh, they work with citizens that own wetlands or properties that have wetlands on them. So they can help conserve wetlands um, privately, but they also are, um, as an NGO or a non-government organization, they have a great voice with the government. 
they have a lot of clout. I mean, they've been doing this for years and years and before wetland policies were a thing. And so they, they've recognized the value of wetlands for a long time. So, I mean, either that looks like supporting, you know, Ducks Unlimited or even just checking out their resources. They have a lot of things online, a lot of places you can go um, that are like protected wetlands, but are open to public use. So you can go and visit and, you know, do some bird watching or check out the cool wetland species, like plant wise. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a great one. Nature Conservancy, I think, also has a list of like cool protected wetlands. Again, another NGO. Um, so, I mean, supporting those organizations is a great start, especially for someone who maybe even just to learn more about what is a wetland. That's huge. If you have land, ideally you can serve wetlands. But I mean, I don't know anybody who has land with wetlands on it. So, I mean, that maybe is a little bit less of, a, of an option for people. But yeah, just being aware, I guess. So then, I mean, knowing what there is out there, I mean, knowing that we've lost 70% of our wetlands down South, I mean, that allows it, once you're educated or you're informed, then you're conscious, right? You can all of a sudden, you can say, Hey, no, I think we should keep this wetland or Hey government, I think you should value wetlands as a policy. So yeah, education, education first, and then yeah, support those organizations that are already doing awesome work. Yeah. And be that Ducks Unlimited or the Nature Conservancy of Canada are kind of two places that come to mind off the top of my head. In Edmonton, there's the uh, Edmonton Area Land Trust. They don't necessarily, you know, associate just with wetlands, but they, they do some really great work as well. Yeah, yeah. So stay educated and support. <laughs> Get your voice out there. I think we kind of touched this on a little bit earlier, but what can like organizations do also to help protect wetlands? Typically you'll want to, I mean, so if you're conserving the wetland, which we hope is their choice, I mean, they get they get three options, right? They get to compensate, they get to restore, they get to replace. And so if they, they choose to keep the wetland, which we hope they would, um, you have to give a buffer on the wetland. Because so I, I you think, okay, the wetland edge is pretty distinct. Usually the vegetation is very distinct, but um, anything you do in that surrounding area has an impact so be that erosion or you're introducing weed species because you've graded it and stripped it of the current vegetation to have a buffer depending on the size of wetland that you're protecting. So you kind of keep the wetland functioning like it should. So that looks like putting up um, like a cement or a sediment barrier to prevent um, sedimentation of the wetland, especially if you're exposing the topsoil. Um, that also looks like not disturbing it. So not, you know, taking your tow truck and like driving it through the wetland area. <laughs> That's a big problem. Um, not piling material in the wetland is, is another thing that's great. And that's usually during construction. So like when they're actively constructing the neighborhood or putting that building in or what have you, those are things that they'll have to do um, to mitigate any kind of impact to the wetland through that construction period. Um, once, once the development's in place, it's great when these developers will integrate these wetlands into their properties. And again, I was kind of speaking to that before, but it's, yeah, a little bit of greenwashing, but it's like, you know, they, they're saying, Hey, come buy a house in this neighborhood. We've got natural amenities. You can go, you know, walk your dog around this beautiful wetland area. And it's got lots of bird species and everything. So, I mean, that makes it a bit more attractive for potential buyers. But for me as a, as a consultant, I'm like, hey, please, like, I don't, you know, whatever it takes to keep those wetlands in place. If that, if that looks like you're, you know, using it as a marketing tool, I don't care. <laughs> Just like keep those wetlands, please. So the other, the other thing that developers have to work around 
is stormwater. So that's like runoff that comes from impervious surfaces. So all of a sudden they've taken, you know, an agricultural field and it used to be all vegetation and soil. And so the rainwater would just kind of go into the ground, you know, in situ. But now they've put a bunch of houses on there and there's parking lots and, and driveways and all these things that the water can't get through those kind of impervious paved surfaces. And so that water has to go somewhere. And so oftentimes they will, you know, integrate stormwater into wetlands. So like maybe they'll, you know, take in this existing wetland and then use that for stormwater drainage. Or maybe they'll take a stormwater, like a constructed storm pond, and then try to naturalize that so that it looks more like a wetland. So, I mean, those are also things that developers will often do as part of their development because they do have to make use of that stormwater somewhere. Otherwise, they'll have issues um, both, you know, on, on their property with erosion and other things like that, or they'll have issues with the government because they, they need to account for that water as well as part of the rules and regulations the province puts out. So, so yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, seeing some of these cool designs, I've seen some neighborhoods now that are introducing things like rain gardens and yeah, they're, you know, the wetlands that they, they used to install for storm pond purposes used to be just basically a basin. And then they just have like a line of cattails around the edge, which I mean, sometimes that's what you'd see, you know, that's sometimes a wetland, but you know, oftentimes it's kind of lacking in diversity, but I'm seeing more and more like they're getting into that kind of restoration effort and they're bringing in landscape architects and they're bringing in environmental consultants like myself who are helping in that restoration work. So yeah, I mean, that's cool. Cause sometimes that's not government driven. Sometimes that's developer driven, which is really nice. They don't, they're not being told they have to, which I appreciate. <laughs> Gives me hope, but yeah. Oh, that's good. Is there anything else you'd like to ask? No, I think that's it. Yeah, I, uh, I think I've covered off everything. Maybe covered it off more than I should have, but. <laughs> uh, that's all good. That's all good. So, oh, thank you for being on this episode. Cool. Yes, thank you for having me. No problem. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a good day.